Our text tonight is Colossians 1, and really from verse 3 through verse 8. But the phrase that I want us to focus on is actually in verse 5, the truth of the gospel, gospel truth. And uh, we mentioned this morning about the importance of the Reformation and those that God used as a mighty force and a mighty work that rediscovered the gospel of grace. And amongst those reformers, John Calvin is widely acknowledged as one of the greatest And one of the things really that sets Calvin apart is that he was given a a deep spiritual grasp of the coherence in the message of the Bible. He saw it as a whole, saw the way that it came together. And his large view of the awesomeness and the majesty of the God of the Bible and his love for Christ and for the gospel saw a passionate determination to see the word of God proclaimed throughout the nation. And he gave his life to that. In fact, as his earthly life came towards its close, he wrote a letter to his longtime friend and brother in Christ, William Farrell. It was May the 2nd, 1564. And as he was close to death, this is what he wrote. He said, I draw my breath with difficulty, and every moment I'm in expectation of breathing my last. But it is enough that I live and die for Christ who is to all his followers again in both life and death. Again, I bid you and your brethren farewell. Farrell would actually see Calvin again before the Lord took him only three weeks later, and Calvin's body would be laid in an unmarked grave. But the thing that distinguished his life and his ministry was that he was committed to proclaiming the truth of the gospel, proclaiming the truth of God, And like the other reformers, Calvin was convinced that this Bible, the Scriptures, were the very Word of God. He said, we owe to the Scripture the same reverence we owe to God because it proceeded from Him alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. In his own experiences, he had confirmed that the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. And that's why he was so committed to the faithful, consecutive preaching of the Word of God. That's why we are committed to that here. Because God speaks through his Word. And when we come, we should have that anticipation, that readiness to hear what he has to say to us. And at that time when the Reformation broke out and in the years that followed, Calvin saw that time and he believed that the Word of God was a lamp that had been taken away from the churches, but then had been rediscovered. And that was to be treasured, it was to be guarded. And he would often pray, he prayed these words. He said, God, your word, which ought to have shone on all your people like a lamp, was taken away or at least suppressed. We earnestly pray you not to judge with that fearful abandonment of your word from which in your wondrous goodness you have at last delivered us. It was a great concern to him that the gospel was not lost again. That was on his heart. And he had a disdain for those who sought to preach their own ideas in the pulpit. And he said, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we might bring our own dreams and our own fancies with us. We are to expound and preach the scriptures as a whole. And as the preacher does that, he is forced to deal with all that God desires to say not just what the preacher wants to say. 
And he challenged pastors of his day. The word still challenges now. He says, let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep and kill the wolves and instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. And friends, that has to be our position even today. In the challenges that we face, we must stand true to the word of God. It must be central. And this phrase, the truth of the gospel that Paul uses here, that is that truth that was rediscovered at the Reformation, and it was the central emphasis in the mission and the growth of the early church. And what I find incredible is that even as Paul opens this letter, in his opening statements, the greetings, as he draws things in, he grounds it all in the truth of the gospel. That is, in everything that he is speaking of here. And it is so easy to lose sight of the gospel truth. It can be lost in churches quicker than you would imagine. It can be lost amongst ourselves. And so we must constantly remind ourselves of what the truth of the gospel is. And in verse 5, Paul uses this term that was often used in Greek to describe news that is brought back. Good news from the battlefield, news of victory. And he speaks of the truth of the gospel being news of the greatest victory in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The stunning news of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone, that comes to us by grace alone and is received through faith alone, that is still a message today. You know, we ask the question, well, what are believers meant to do with this gospel so that it isn't lost? What are we meant to do with this gospel today? Well, a number of things. We are to proclaim the gospel. You know, this is what the Lord Jesus did in Matthew 4. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he commanded his disciples to go and do the same. Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're also to defend the gospel. Paul writes in Philippians 1, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. There are times when we have to defend it, stand upon the truth and to defend it. We're also to labor in the gospel. Again, Philippians 1, Paul says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Why? Because this, this proclamation, this preaching of the truth demands commitment. And it demands discipline to see it go forward. And as we are committed to that, we're also to enjoy the fellowship of the gospel. Again, Philippians 1.5, your fellowship in the gospel. Do you know, believers know great joy when they come together and share in that common possession of the truth. When they serve alongside one another to take that gospel out and to proclaim it. Also, we're to suffer in the gospel. To Timothy 1.8, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, when we're faithful to the truth, when we preach the gospel in its fullness, and when we are serving the Lord in gospel work, it will bring joy. 
but also it will bring suffering and there will be opposition and difficulty. Also, as believers, we must be careful not to hinder the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.12, we must endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And also, we must make sure that we are not ashamed of the gospel. And friends, all of these responsibilities that are upon us, that as believers we are to do with the gospel, as it were, we can't do that in our own strength. We need that divine empowering and equipping that comes from the Spirit of God. And so we have to treasure this wonderful gospel. And it is a, a, a one gospel. There is only one gospel. Galatians 1 warns, if any tries to preach another gospel, then they are to be accursed. And you know, when we think about the glory of the gospel, you know, as you read through the New Testament, you see how many lovely titles it's given. Let me remind you of some of them. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of his Son. The gospel of God. The gospel of Christ. The glorious gospel the gospel of peace, the everlasting gospel. There is only one gospel, but it has all these wonderful elements to it. And what does it declare? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the message. Great news about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for sinners like you and me, that he has conquered death and that he has risen again. And it's only in Christ that sinners can be forgiven and made right with God and know what it is to be children of God. That's the message. And it's clear and it's simple. And it is the power of God unto salvation. And it has great impact. And that's what we see in verses 3 to 8 of our text. The impact of the gospel. We see this gospel truth in action. And as Paul writes, he is full of thanksgiving and he's full of joy because he looks at the believers in the, the church at Colossae and he rejoices in the fact that they have savingly heard and believed the gospel, that they've trusted Jesus for themselves and that the gospel, the work of God, was bearing fruit in their lives. And it thrills him to see it. And then as a result of what God was doing in their midst, he also rejoices in the fact that a, a church has been planted and the church is going on as faithful witness. And even though there are, there are dangers of error and challenges to the church, the believers there give him much cause to rejoice. And if you look at verse 3, he says, we give thanks. And he's speaking of himself and Timothy. And actually, if you... Uh, looks through, you would find that the better reading drops the ant in that verse. So it should be we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always in regard to you when praying. And he says, when we pray, we are giving thanks to God for you, for you as believers in Colossae. Now, why does he phrase it like that? Well, the emphasis of this letter is to exalt the Lord Jesus and to make it clear that he is the Son of God. And even in these opening verses, he is underlining this precious relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And also notice that he calls the Son the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so he's making sure that there's no misunderstanding about who Jesus is. He is fully God, the same essence as the Father. He is the Son who has come, fully God and fully man. And as he brings that emphasis and gives thanks to God, he also makes it clear that he's not congratulating the Colossians on their own achievements, but he's giving glory to God for what God is doing in their midst. And it's amazing because as he does that, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he draws out a number of different aspects of this gospel truth, things that were treasured by the Reformers, what we should treasure today. And so see them with me, if you will. Look, if you will, the truth of the gospel, it is received by faith. The truth of the gospel is received by faith. Notice what he says. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He thanks God that their faith and trust is in Jesus Christ alone. Now, there were many who were not doing that. Some were perverting the gospel. Some were dismissing it. Some knew it, but would not obey it. You know, friends, that is a very serious and frightening position to be in. To know of the gospel and yet to not obey. 1 Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, we have a a similar warning. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Serious thing. But he rejoices here in the fact that these believers at Colossae, they had trusted Christ. And it thrills his heart. And friend, you know, it thrills my heart when there are people saved. And we long to see more in this day and age of people coming to Jesus Christ and being saved. And you know what else throws my heart when I look out, even on an occasion like tonight, and see those of you here who are believers, who are miracles of grace, sat there in those pews, and my heart is full of thanksgiving for you, that God has worked in this way. Those of you who have believed and obeyed the gospel. Do you know there is a danger in this day and age when there are challenges that we can just be filled with doom and gloom, and we never see the encouragements and the tokens of blessing, but we should rejoice with thanksgiving when we see those who believe. And this gospel is to be believed. Acts 15, 7, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear, Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This gospel is to be believed, received by faith. So he says, your faith in Christ Jesus. So a Christian is one who, by the grace of God, has been given to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ, to be persuaded, to be convinced of the truth and to trust it, the one whom the truth is centered upon. And so faith is never a vague thing. It is a certain hope. It is a committing of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, Saving faith grounded in him alone. Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, the idea in that verse is resting on a secure foundation. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. You will be secure. 
Or Acts 20, verse 21, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea there is finding a dwelling place to go into, to abide in, to find a lasting home, to find rest for your soul. And in our text here, faith in Christ draws out the idea of being anchored in him. It's a total trust in Christ, like resting on a foundation, like finding a home, like putting out an anchor. And God gives us this faith by his grace. And we're enabled to believe the truth, to turn from our sin, and to trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the simplicity of the gospel. You know, Spurgeon used to tell a story about two men in a boat, and they were caught in very severe rapids and heading towards a a dangerous waterfall and more rapids, and there was no way of survival if they got caught up in what lay ahead. And so they began to struggle for their lives. And as they were carried swiftly downstream, they were carried towards these terrible rocks and the falls and some men are on the shore. They, they saw them and they tried to save the two men and they, they threw a rope out to them. And the men were thrown from the boat and they were struggling in the current. And one man, he caught the rope and he was saved. At the same instant, the other man who could have caught the rope, he could have, it was within his grasp in the panic of the moment, instead of grabbing the rope, he grabbed onto a log that was floating by and it was a fatal mistake. One man was pulled to the shore because he had a connection with the people on the land. The other clinging to the log was carried down through the rapids and was never found again. You see, faith in Christ anchors us to him, to the solid shore, to that eternal foundation. Faith in anything else, whether it's good works or empty religion, whatever, is like grabbing that log and it only ends in disaster. And Paul says that he is thankful to God that these believers are anchored for eternity in Christ because this truth of the gospel is received by faith. But also this truth of the gospel results in love. Notice what else he says. He says he rejoices in their love for all the saints. One of the main outworkings of saving faith is love for the brethren, love for the saints. You know, if you're truly saved, if you're born again, if you're believing in Christ, you will love the people of God. Saving faith never leads to isolation. Rather, it purges us, it pulls us away of selfishness, and it gives us a new perspective on those around us. Our love for our brothers and sisters is a reflection of Christ's love for us. And there's a generosity in that love as well. Notice he says, your love for all the saints. And as we know the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts, so we begin to demonstrate and show that love towards others. It is fundamental in our walk as believers. You know, there are some who say they, they love Christ, but they don't demonstrate any love for their brothers and sisters. And that highlights a problem in their walk. Jesus gave that new command that we are to love one another. And also, he gives us the capacity to love like that. 1 Peter 1 speaks of loving fervently. It is unlike anything in this world. We are saved by faith, and we are saved to love. Loving Christ, loving the brethren, they are connected, and we love each other in attitudes and our acts of self-sacrifice. We esteem others above ourselves and our own interests. 
You know, how can I show that love for you, particularly those who are under my care here? One of the key things is that I work hard to keep you fed in the word of God, to lay before you and again and again these glorious truths that under the Lord's hand they may impact you. I pour myself out to invest in your spiritual well-being and your growth. And how can you show your love in response? Well, you seek to do everything you can to be all that God wants you to be, to be committed to the cause of Christ, to be available to serve in the ways that you're able. As one says, caring enough to do what God has given us to do in responsibility to meet one another's needs. You see, the truth of the gospel not only saves us and is received by faith, but it results in love and love for all the saints. And this truth of the gospel, Paul also says, rests in hope. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. He thanks God and he rejoices because of the hope that they have. That inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. We said this morning, didn't we, that that eternal perspective, that living in the light of glory, it impacts how we live now. And it impacts how we love our brothers and sisters. And that hope should thrill our hearts. God has made us his children. He's making us like his son. We're being prepared for glory. Faith and hope are so much linked. We believe and we hope. We live in an age, don't we, where there is a constant cry for instant satisfaction. We want everything right now. And if we don't get it now, well, we're done with it and we're on to the next thing. So much impatience. But the believer shouldn't be like that because we have this eternal, secure, certain hope and we're willing to sacrifice the present on the basis of the future that is to come. Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, only certain hope can bring that attitude, an unwavering confidence that what the Lord has for us in the future is better than anything that we have now. Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You see, that's the perspective. We see the present in the light of eternity. And we serve the Lord and we make sacrifices here in order to lay up our treasure in heaven, to press on towards that, that upward call and prize. And you know, the world doesn't understand that. And they laugh at that. They, they mock it. They think it's ridiculous. And also, as we mentioned this morning, again, many in the church have settled only for living for the now. They've lost sight of what God has for them in the future. And so poor and dishonoring choices are made. But Paul gives thanks for these believers because they've got that eternal perspective. And the Christian is willing to place his life in the hand of God, to rest upon the truth, the unseen, the things above, rather than living purely for the seen. They have, a, they have a future hope and the prospect of glory, which is already theirs, but not yet known in fullness. 
Oh, friends, there's so much more to come. And then, verse 6, the truth of the gospel also reaches the world. Look at what he says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. Why does he say that? Well, Paul wants to make sure that these Colossian believers understand that this gospel of God, this gospel of Christ, isn't just another local type of mystery religion or sect. No, this is the truth of God. The gospel was and is turning the world upside down. Do you know, even now, this night, in this moment, people are being saved across the globe. This is good news for the world. You know, think of Romans, Romans 1.8. Paul says to the believers, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Or Romans 10, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, the sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This message spreads across the nations. It's not bound by geography. It's effective to say from every tribe and every nation and every people. And in verse 6, Paul speaks of the personal response of the Colossian believers to the gospel, but also he gives them that worldwide view that this gospel is global in that it is saving people all over the world. It's the truth of God which speeds its way beyond culture, beyond borders of countries. It extends to the world. Think of that wonderful vision in Revelation 7. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the gospel continues to spread. The grace of God extending across the nations, calling all men everywhere to repent. Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. When we know the gospel truth, it should lead to a vision for world mission. And then last couple of things as we draw to a close. The truth of the gospel also produces fruit. Paul says it is bringing forth fruit because the gospel, the word of God, is alive. It is powerful. It is productive. Divine energy produces fruit. And when that seed is planted into the divinely prepared heart, it bears fruit. And it not only works within, but it bears fruit and that it shows itself without. The gospel changes, it transforms an individual. And as they grow, as they mature, they, they develop in their influence and the church grows. You know, you see it in Acts, Acts 9. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Acts 12, the word of God grew and multiplied. In other words, the word of God was producing fruit in the lives of the people and growth came. It was spreading so that others were impacted. And you see that in Acts again and again. 
because the gospel comes into a life, it transforms, it begins to produce fruit, and it begins to spread to others. And so this truth of the gospel produces fruit, and it's full of grace. He says, you heard and you knew the grace of God in truth. Paul cannot speak about the gospel with coming back to grace and great grace. All of the religions based on the assumption you must do something to earn or to try and work your way to being good enough for God. And Paul says, no, this is all of the grace of God. God dealing with us as we do not deserve, saving us, his work, from beginning to end. And that is a message to be proclaimed, friends. And that's what Epaphras did. He went and faithful minister of Christ, and he'd been vital in taking the gospel of grace to these brethren in Colossae. And it reminds us that God is pleased to use human channels like you and me to bear witness to him. And he can use you. He can use me. And this gospel is to be proclaimed and God has given us as believers this great privilege to be ambassadors for Christ, to to bear witness and to declare the wonders of Christ. And he has put us here for such a time as this, even in this little body of the Lord's people. We are not here by accident. And it's only those who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel who have been saved by the grace of God who not only receive all these great blessings, but with overflowing hearts, desire to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ. You see, this gospel truth has impact and action. And you know, if you'd attended John Calvin's church in Geneva, you would have been struck by their passion for gospel outreach virtually every week. Do you know, Calvin prayed for the success of missionary work at the end of almost every message that he proclaimed. He prayed that the light would break through in the darkness. He prayed that many would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He prayed that the glory of God might shine over all and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ be increased and advanced more and more. And as the scriptures were preached faithfully, sometimes more than 20 times in a week, many people were brought to saving faith in Christ and growing in personal godliness this gospel truth had major impact under God. It was changing life spiritually, but you know, it also had impact in terms of the love of Christ being demonstrated practically. Did you know that poor refugees were welcomed in the name of Jesus Christ? Did you know that the sick were given medical care? Did you know that children were educated and cared for and given homes, including girls as well as boys? And the work would spread not only from Geneva, but to the rest of the French-speaking world. And Calvin believed that the Spirit of God would always bring the Word to do its work. And he encouraged others to pursue open doors of gospel opportunity back in France and beyond. And the mission burden that was on his heart became the burden of the church at Geneva. They would send many missionaries. At one point, they sent over 100 missionaries in one year across France and beyond, many of whom, by the way, had first been refugees who had come to them for asylum and then had been trained and sent out to preach the gospel. And the impact was staggering. One has said in 1555, there were five, five 
evangelical and reformed churches in France. By 1559, there were over 500. That's in four years. By 1562, seven years, there were more than 2,000. There were churches and house churches all over France. One congregation that was pastored by Pierre Viret had more than 8,000 members. And it was because they knew that this gospel truth was the power of God. And they had faith in the God of the open door. You know, he wrote in his commentary on Genesis, today when God wishes his gospel to be preached in the whole world, so that the world may be restored from death to life, he seems to ask for the impossible. We see how greatly we are resisted everywhere. We see how many and what potent opposition Satan works against us so that all roads seem to be blocked. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar today, doesn't it? But God is the God of the impossible. And though it came at great cost and loss of life, the gospel was proclaimed and God blessed the proclamation of his word and many were brought into the kingdom. It's the same gospel we proclaim today. It is still powerful to save. The question is, do we believe that? Do we have confidence in that? There is one gospel. There is one truth. And I thank God for it because without it, I would be nowhere. I would be without Christ. I would be without hope. And so would you. But our task now, as ever, is to make sure that this gospel is not lost, but that we continue to keep the gospel truth front and center, that many others might be saved, not only in Penzance, but even across the nations. And you know, we look and we might think, well, we're just a small church. What can we do? In God's hands, who knows? what he may be pleased to do. It's not about our strength. It's about him. The question is, do we have that vision? I pray that we will, because this gospel truth is glorious and it's powerful and it's full of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.